Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Uh, in fact, it'll be helpful, especially just for, for one part in particular today, to be able to follow along through the whole chapter. Although for the majority of our study, we're just going to be taking verses 29 to 31 today. Uh, but you can turn there in your Bibles. And uh, we're going to continue with the theme that we began two weeks ago, thinking about Advent. Um, we are focusing in this series of Advent sermons. Uh, we're focusing our attention especially on Jesus' arrival. And in particular, we're focusing our attention on Jesus' second Advent, His second coming. Uh, as we've noted the last couple weeks, it is in keeping with a historical Christian mindset around Christmas time uh, to remind ourselves that in in Jesus' coming, in His first coming, we have God with us, Emmanuel. And, and if Jesus came the first time as He was promised, we can be compelled forward during this season uh, to uh, consider the fact that the one who's come is the one who's going to come again. And while Christmas, especially at least as we think about it in contemporary Christianity, while Christmas tends to be primarily absorbed in celebrations around the first coming of Jesus, and that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing, but while we're primarily absorbed thinking about the first coming of Jesus, Christians down through the ages have noted the special focus that can be placed upon the second coming of Jesus during this season. Uh, and just as an example, we've, we've even talked about how our songs can reflect that. So this morning we sang the Christmas song, As With Gladness Men of Old. And the first stanza uh, went, As with gladness men of old did the guiding star behold. As with joy they hailed its light, leading onward, beaming bright. So, most gracious Lord, may we evermore be led to Thee. So that first stanza was referencing the wise men who came to visit the child Jesus. And that's very typically a, a Christmassy thing to think about. Uh, but then uh, we have, we have this, the last stanza of that same song. We have these lyrics. Holy Jesus every day keep us in the narrow way. And when earthly things are past, bring our ransomed souls at last. Where they need no star to guide, where no clouds thy glory hide. So, so Christmas time is a time for celebration. Jesus came and Christmas is a time of expectation because the one who came is the one who's going to come again and we will be with Jesus in his glorious physical presence. And we look forward to that exceedingly as Christian believers. And, and that tension between celebrating and expecting at Christmas time is that tension that's not just a historical point of consideration for Christian believers, but it's a profoundly biblical point of consideration for us as Christian believers. And we experienced this even this morning with our call to worship from Isaiah chapter 9. At the end of that reading in Isaiah that Kristen read for us is, is a passage that is so obviously Christmas-centered. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, so, so uh, for, for us, a child is born. That, that's a very Christmas-centered verse. You may have even put that on the Christmas cards your family mailed out this year, and that's good. But what came before that verse in Isaiah chapter 9? Do you remember from our call to worship this morning? The, the joy of that Christmas verse in Isaiah is sourced in this, that the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, has shattered oppressive yokes, and every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of, of war will be burned as fuel for fire. Just by a show of hands, who put that on their Christmas card this year? We didn't, right? Why not? Well, well because it hasn't happened yet, has it? 
Jesus has come, and he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. This is the Christ who was born for us, and we celebrate that, and we know him, and we trust in him. But we don't have the fullness of what's promised in Christ just yet. Because in this world and on this Christmas, boots are still made bloody in battle, and oppression is still very present across our world. So celebration, Jesus has come, but also expectation, and even we could say tense expectation as we long for his coming again. Both those truths may not be present on our Christmas cards, but they're very present in our songs and they're present in our Bibles because the truth of Christmas leaves us joyful and it leaves us waiting. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And then also, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet their songs repeat of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. So we rejoice in the coming of Christ, and, and with that joy our prayer even still remains, come Lord Jesus. And so, and so it's the second advent that we've been giving our attention to for these Sundays leading up to Christmas. We've been thinking about Jesus' second coming, and we're considering Jesus' second coming from a passage of Jesus' own teaching in Matthew's Gospel, commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Initially, I thought maybe we'd step into 1 Thessalonians as part of this Advent series, but ended up just staying here. Um, and and, and that's, that's a good thing, I think. This passage is very helpful for us. It has the name Olivet Discourse because you see there at the beginning of, of chapter 24 that Jesus is giving this teaching um, from the Mount of Olives. So obviously its name is geographically attached there. And this isn't an easy passage to understand. Uh, we could spend a whole series of sermons sorting through some of the nuances of, of, of this passage. Um, but when we're studying our Bibles, especially when we're in the thick of harder sections, we always want to be asking the question, uh, what interpretation makes the most sense of the most texts or the most sense of the most verses? And as we read the Olivet Discourse with, with that question in mind, instead of what's here being only fulfilled in the past, as, as some have held, that what's going on in this passage Jesus speaks to has all already taken place, but as we read this, instead of holding a view that all this is already past, or as others do, they hold that all of this is only future in its coming. Instead of holding that all of this is only in the future, as we read this in a way that makes the most sense of the most texts, we recognize that there's good reason to take what Jesus says here in a way that accounts for both past events and future concerns, as well as understand that this truth is for our present encouragement and circumstances, as we would expect from our Bible. There's good exegetical reason for taking, for taking this in a way, which, which again would take a whole other sermon to unpack. And if you want to do lunch and talk about it, we can do that. But, but what's here is for us and it's truth for our time and the times in which we live in order to foster our own persevering and our own proper expectations. Um, now, because, because it's helpful to see the flow of things, what, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give a quick 30,000 foot flyover uh, of the Olivet Discourse, and it's going to be quick, but, but before we get into our specific verses of study this morning, and, and this is worth doing, I think, just so we can catch how all of this flows together, and I always also want to do this, um, because just given the nature of this Advent study, we're going to be jumping a bit. So last week we ended with verse 14, we're going to jump up to verse 29 this week, and I don't normally do that, and it's hard for me, 
uh, to do that. If we were going through Matthew, obviously we would take a great deal of time with each section, maybe more time than you think we should. But, but, but um, we are jumping forward today. So, so I just want to make sure all the pieces are filled in, even for your own study, if you want to go home and think through some of this uh, further. Um, so if you have your Bibles open, I hope you do. Let, let me just give you a brief outline um, to get us the overall point of view for this teaching that Jesus gives. Um, so, so, so we see there, actually, I, I messed this up in the scripture reading, but it was for good reason. Uh, I, I guess it's a happy providence because it all starts in the beginning of 24 with Jesus uh, telling his disciples that the temple is going to be destroyed. So that's what starts everything off. And the disciples at that time had so connected the end of the temple with the time of, of Jesus, the, the messianic return, the promised king deliverer coming back. They'd connected those things so much in their own mind. That was a, a first century way of thinking about the end of time in terms of Jewish thought. Uh, that they asked this question in verse 3. So Jesus has said the temple is going to be destroyed. They say, give us a sign of your coming and the end of the age. So what, when is all this going to happen then? And so they think of the temple being destroyed uh, as, as equitable to the same time that, that all things are going to, the end of the age is going to happen. The day of the Lord, to use Old Testament language, is going to take place. Um, and so in Jesus' teaching, he's addressing the temple being destroyed and the timing, uh, to a certain degree, of his second coming, which we know are not simultaneously occurring events. The temple was actually destroyed in the, in the Jewish-Roman wars in A.D. 70, and here we are still waiting for Jesus. Right? So they're not simultaneous uh, events. Um, and Jesus is, is beginning to communicate some of this truth to his disciples. He obviously... He, he's, he's trying to make this clear, and he's teaching his disciples, uh, really answering questions they didn't ask to a certain degree. So they've said, give us a, a sign of the timing of all of this. You know, when will the temple be destroyed? When will you return? And Jesus gives teaching, like we said last week, in a way that doesn't necessarily satisfy at any level a kind of predictive curiosity, uh, but instead, his priority is to give them truth that will help his disciples and also help us persevere as we wait for his return as, as his faithful followers. And so here's how this teaching flows. We just think about this. In verses 4 to 14, which was our section last week, uh, Jesus speaks in general uh, about calamities and gospel advancement that's going to mark out the time between his ascension into heaven and his return. Okay, so there's wars and rumors of wars. There's, there's deceivers who come on the scene of history. There's earthquakes, persecution of believers, and the gospel is going to be spread worldwide uh, during, during history as well. And so in verses 4 to 14, Jesus speaks about these things, and then he makes comments like, don't be alarmed, these things must take place, but the end is not yet. So, so in these verses, 4 to 14, Jesus provides a kind of historical tapestry, if you like, of how history is going to unfold while we wait for him to come back. There's going to be National and natural disasters and deception and gospel spread. All of that, we can say, is inter-advent stuff. It's the stuff that's going to happen in the meantime while we're waiting. It's what, it's what marks out the time of waiting. And then in verses 15 to 28, Jesus zooms in and gives a description that is more particular in terms of some of the coming turmoil that this generation of disciples is going to experience. And, and it helps them think in, in the context of the destruction of the temple. It helps, to help, uh, helps them to think along those lines and what's going to happen there. So in verses 15 up through 28 probably, Jesus speaks in particular, you notice this, particular geographic, culturally specific terms 
about the turmoil that's going to come upon Jerusalem during the Jewish-Roman War. It's a time when, when the temple would be destroyed. Um, so verses 4 to 14, there's a broad description of the world as it is and its suffering and gospel spread while we wait. Then in verses 15 to 28, for the most part, we can say there's a kind of zoomed-in focus on a particular expression of that suffering located historically and geographically for that generation of Jesus' disciples. Though this is complex and there's a, there could be bigger hues to some of this, that's basically what's going on there. And then in verses 29 to 31, which we'll look at today, Jesus speaks about the manner of his return, which will come after these days of waiting. And then in verses 32 to 51, he gives teaching about the timing of his return. So, so that brings us at least up to speed to where we are in our passage. There's going to be trouble while we wait, right? Verses 4 to 14. Then there's going to be a particular expression of that trouble, 15 to 28. Then once that period of waiting, that total period of waiting is over, Jesus is going to come back, verses 29 to 31. And then in the verses that follow, Jesus speaks of the timing of that return. Talks about uh, things like, like the fact it's going to be surprising. It's going to require patience. Uh, there's reason for us to be faithful in waiting. And then it'll be the final judgment, that, that kind of stuff. So, so if that's any help to you, that at least gives a framework for this teaching from Jesus. And it uh, makes me feel better about skipping over a chunk. Um, but, but with all that in mind for today... We're going to jump in and focus on verses 29 to 31, where Jesus speaks about the nature or the manner of his return. Um, what will it be like when Jesus comes back? And this is, uh, of course, so important for us to consider. Um, as, as I told some of you, I had jury duty at the beginning of this week, and I sat in a room for many hours on end waiting for my name to be called. And I sat there all day Monday waiting and a lot of Tuesday waiting. And I was never called, uh, just a lot of waiting. And on Monday, I brought the first book of Lord of the Rings because I was looking forward to sitting and reading. But what happened, uh, probably more than, than I would care to admit, was that instead of only reading, I got fairly drowsy. I kept nodding off, sitting there on Monday. Mondays are drowsy days for me anyway. So I was sitting there, getting not as drowsy as the guy who was sitting behind me who was snoring at decibel levels and, and disturbing the whole entire room. Uh, but I did keep getting drowsy, uh, waiting Waiting can make us drowsy. My book helped a little bit, but not quite enough. I had trouble staying awake because waiting can make us sleepy. That's true in a jury waiting room. And that's also true theologically. Uh, because while we're trusting in Jesus and while we're continuing to confess the glory of who he is and wait for his return, time goes by and years go by and generations go by and we can get drowsy as Christians. The reality of what it will mean that Jesus comes back can stop having a proper effect on our lives simply because waiting has a, a, a lethargy-inducing effect if we're not careful. It can, it can make us spiritually sluggish. And a passage like this comes along and helps wake us up. What, what will it be like at the second advent of Christ? What will it be like when Jesus comes back? So in verses 29 to 31, uh, we're told three main things. And, and we're just going to let these, these truths percolate for us today in our study. So three things about the return of Christ here. There's obviously much more we could say. There's even much more detail we could get into on our, on our verses, which we don't have time for today. But, but there's, there's some main and plain stuff here. So we'll, we'll look at this together. Um, so first of all, verse 29, if we start there, uh, there we're told that when Christ returns, there will be what we'll call celestial upheaval. Okay, celestial upheaval, that's verse 29. 
Um, I'll just read that for us again. Uh, verse 29, immediately after the distress of these days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Okay, uh, so we start there with Jesus saying, after the distress of these days. So, so there's a reference here to the distress that has punctuated history while we wait for Jesus' return, which is the, the broad strokes of what we covered last week in that section. So there's going to be wars, rumors of wars, the deception, natural disasters, Christian persecution, uh, all of these things that Jesus has been speaking about uh, when he, what he called the beginnings of the birth pains. So after the times of history have been filled up according to God's timing, after those days, Jesus says here, he will return. And as we read here, his return will be punctuated in part in part by this celestial upheaval. The, the lights in the sky will go dark and the powers of heaven will be shaken. That's interesting language that's here. Uh, on the one hand, uh, we, we could read this and think of it almost as the beginning of the next scene in a play, couldn't we? If you're sitting in the theater and the scene is changing, uh, everything goes completely black for a while, the lights are out, and then when the lights come back on, everything is different. You know, there's a sense in which, in which it feels like a kind of climactic scene change is occurring here. In verse 29, everything goes black, sun and moon and stars shine no light. It's, it's the great cosmic scene change of the ages. The, the not yet is becoming the now. Right? History as we know it is ending. Something new is going to begin. And, and while that imagery is, is, is dramatic, there's, it, it feels to us like a scene change kind of imagery. We know that what's here uh, with this darkness, is far more than just a scene change. And partly that's because all through the Old Testament Scriptures, all through the prophets from Isaiah to Ezekiel, uh, Joel, Amos, uh, to speak of the sun and moon and stars failing to give their light, that's language that speaks to the day of God's judgment. Uh, sometimes with, with metaphorical references to the kingdoms of the world, but, but far from being merely metaphorical, we remember the, the foremost day of judgment the world has ever known. We remember the day when Christ took our judgment upon himself at the cross. And, and what were we told about that day? Well, from Matthew, same, same gospel writer here, in chapter 27, he tells us that as Jesus hung on the cross paying the judgment price for our sin, there was complete darkness over the whole earth for three hours. So in a verse like this, there's a sense in which we have a sort of apocalyptic imagery here. Uh, it appears to be, to a certain degree, maybe figurative imagery, no light from the sun, moon for moon or stars. And we can wonder in the return of Christ, is this just a, a poetic description of what it will be like when Jesus returns? It's not really that the sun won't shine and the moon won't give his light. Um, but, but then we remember the day of Christ's own death and we realize that, that far more than mere figurative language, there is something deeply realistic and supernatural about what it means when the lights go out in the sky. It speaks to the day of God's supernatural judgment. And we have that indicated further in a cosmic way here when we're told that at the end of this verse that the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That shaken language there takes us back to places like Isaiah 34 where we have the Lord speaking about His coming judgment where the hosts of heaven will fall like leaves fall from the vine. Right, this word shaken here, it speaks to dead leaves falling from a tree. And, and, and with that in mind, 
we remember what the Apostle Paul says when he's speaking about our battle as Christian believers in Ephesians. He talks about how our battle is not ultimately against flesh and blood, but it's against what Paul refers to as the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So, so thinking about what it will be like on the extraordinary day of Jesus' return, we have the sky going dark and we have the powers of the heavens shaken like a tree is shaken and its dead leaves fall. So this speaks of God's judgment. And in particular, it's connected here to the powers in the heavenly realms falling. So it points to the fact that at Jesus' return, the demonic powers in the spiritual realm bent on evil and influencing and actively seeking the harm of God's created order, those spiritual forces active in the present darkness of this world are being shaken from their places of influence and power and are falling to their condemned destruction like leaves fall from a tree. Uh, to, to put it less poetically and maybe even a little bluntly, it's, it's demonic compost. So, so what will it be like when Jesus returns? Well, it, it would seem that there will be a unique expression of darkness, the likes of which uh, we, we've never experienced. The celestial bodies will fail to give any light, total darkness. And with that, there will be the defeating decimation of the spiritual powers of evil. The scriptures make it very clear that, that demons are active in our present age. Uh, those higher order spiritual beings rebellious against God and his purposes, they, they seek the death and destruction of all that God said is good. They exercise influence in our world, stirring and disturbing the hearts of men and women. For example, in, in 1 Timothy 4, Paul attributes false teaching in the church that speaks incorrectly about marriage. He, he attributes that to a doctrine of demons. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John has a vision that makes it plain that while our sinful hearts contribute to the love of destruction around us, there are also demonic activities at play that are extremely effective in influencing wicked practices like deception and persecution. If you dare to take the adventure, you can read about that in Revelation 13 this afternoon. There's a, there's a picture of these two beasts, which is apocalyptic imagery to describe those who affect influence and power in the world. There's, these demonic figures are pictured in Revelation 13 as rising cyclically through human history from scary places, persecuting and deceiving. And they're allowed to have authority, but only for a fixed amount of time, that chapter tells us. And here in our verses is the day when that demonic influence, those authorities, will come to an end. Jesus returns, and the cosmos is darkened by the judgment of God, and demonic forces are shaken down as dead leaves fall from trees. And while that isn't jingle bells, this should give us cause to have great Christmas cheer just occurs to me that, that I could use this as my excuse for not putting Christmas lights up, the darkness at Christmas time. But, but, but the darkness of the cosmos at Christ's return, when the evil forces in the heavenly realms are shaken down into nothing, that is a reason for joy, that this is an aspect of the fulfillment of God's promise to Eve all the way back in the garden when she was deceived by the serpent and, and God spoke to Eve and said, a child's going to come who's going to crush the serpent's head. And Jesus did come. He, he paid the price for the curse of death. He ransomed us from the kingdom of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of life. And on the day of his return, the fullness of his victory will be felt as demons shudder in the terror of their comprehensive defeat. So, so we're responsible for the fallen intentions of our, of our rebellious hearts as humanity. 
But we are assisted and affected and influenced in deepest destruction by the influence of demonic powers in the heavenly realms. You walk down the street of our city and you see people made in the image of God. So you you see people of, of glorious, inestimable human worth reduced to nothing by a constant compulsion for the drugs that are destroying them. That's bad decision making. And that's demonic. And Christ will crush those spiritual powers finally and fully when he returns. The manner of Christ's second coming will include this celestial upheaval. And then secondly, the manner of Christ's return will include his, I struggled with a heading for this, his indisputable appearing. Well, maybe we'll say that, his indisputable appearing. This is verse 30. Um, in fact, I'll just read verse 30 again. Uh, then the sky, or sorry, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Um, so, so we have this statement about the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the sky. Uh, what, what, what's the sign? Well, it could be, it could be a couple of things. On the one hand, the word sign there is a word that can signify a, a banner that an army might carry as they escort their king uh, forward to declare his victory, his, his presence in, in, in victory in battle. So maybe this indicates that there will be some kind of cosmically evident banner announcing the entrance, entrance of the Savior, warrior, king into the world when Jesus returns. Some take it that way. But more likely, the sign is the coming of the Son of Man himself. The sign that appears in the sky is, is, is Jesus. Je- Jesus is the sign referred to here. In other words, the symbol that appears in the sky to indicate what's happening as the sky has gone dark uh, is, is now the universal visible presence of the glory of the Lord Jesus himself as he comes riding on the clouds or as he says earlier in this chapter, like lightning going across the sky. Right? He's the sign. In fact, in, in Mark and in Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse, the same teaching, they don't speak about people seeing the sign of the Son of Man, they just specifically say people will see Christ. Right? And, and so that's probably what's going on here. The sign is Jesus' glorious presence. And it's worth mentioning because, as you can imagine, there are a number of, ex- of exciting things written about what that sign might be. Yeah. So, the skies have gone dark. Forces in the heavenly realms are shaken down from their places. And then, the, and then Christ will appear in the sky. And then if we can just jump to the end of verse 30 for a moment, he'll be seen coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So so just as the disciples saw Jesus ascend to heaven in a cloud in Acts chapter 1, and they were told he's going to return in the same way, uh, here we have some allusions to Daniel chapter 7. You could read that for your homework if you'd like to. But here, here he does return in the same way, or as the, as the psalmist would refer to Yahweh, he returns as the mighty cloud rider, right? And upon Jesus' return, there's something unmistakably and indescribably, visibly glorious about his powerful presence in this second advent. This is not a baby born in a lowly manger. This is the Son of God and all the glory of the clouds of heaven surrounded by his warrior angels. We're told here of Jesus' second coming as being that of in great glory. So there's this kind of weighty reality of who Jesus is in in the eternal divine lordship of his personhood. It's really the kind of glory that that Isaiah had to shield his eyes from when he felt unworthy before that vision of the Lord in in, in the prophet Isaiah's call. 
it's in that great array of resplendent glory, we could say, uh, kind of uncompromised, unparalleled, holy power that Jesus is going to appear at his return. It's not really words to fully describe, is there? And then we note in this verse that, that all the people of the earth will mourn when they see this. Not the saints of the earth, they're in the next verse. But all the people, all the tribes, there's a word here for tribes, all the tribes of the earth, th those who have not yielded to Christ, they're going to mourn when they see the Lord Jesus return in all cosmic power and glory. And why are they going to mourn? Well, because at that point there will be no denying things then. Right? There will be no excuses on that day. The indisputable universal manifestation of Christ's glory will be worldwide in its display upon his return. There'll be no denying things then. There'll be no ignoring the person and reign of Jesus Christ then. There's going to be no question about who is the mighty sovereign over the entirety of the cosmos. There'll be no confusion about the identity of this one who's riding on the clouds. There'll be no disinterest or indifference to the Lord Jesus on that day. There will instead be total clarity that the master of the universe has entered the domain of his creation for the day of reckoning and redemption. There will be a, a worldwide sureness of Jesus' identity upon his arrival. And as a result, there will be, in part, mourning. So there will be expressions of great grief from those bitter of soul who in the hardness of their heart have chosen not to bend their knee to Christ and find refuge in him while it was the day of salvation. And now he has returned to find them in persistent rebellion. These are the folks we who we speak too late, Jesus speaks too later in this same sermon, whereas things unfold and the day of judgment has come. These are folks who inevitably end up as weepers or gnashers of teeth. Sorrowful for the state of affairs, their folly has gotten themselves in. Some are weeping, some are gnashing, some are gnashing. I hate the Lord Jesus. So we have these folks here, but, but this is part of what it'll be like when Jesus returns. He'll be seen in his universal resplendent power and the people of the earth will mourn. In fact, just listen to how this situation is described in Revelation chapter 6. Some of the language is a little bit more apocalyptic, but you'll notice how it illustrates the, the same thing, speaks to the same thing. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as, fig tree drop, as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. Do you hear the parallel? The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Warning. And if this notion is troubling to us, we must remember the verse we put on our Christmas card from Isaiah chapter 9. Now, the wonderful counselor, Prince of Peace, is the same one who comes to execute perfect justice and end all rebellion, oppression, and bloodshed. And when this Jesus returns, that is exactly what he will do. And those who have loved a life disregarding the lordship of Christ and the life he promises will face that day with unrelenting sorrow. At the very indisputable appearing of the Lord Jesus across the world, those who have chosen to reject him for the banner that flies over hell, which says, I am my own, 
But those who reject the Lord Jesus, they will mourn. But those aren't the only people affected by the return of Christ on that final day. Because not only is his appearing evident to all, even those who refuse to believe, his return is also marked by the victorious gathering of his people. The victorious gathering of his people. This is verse 31. Verse 31, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So this language here of trumpet blast, it reminds us of places like 1 Corinthians 15, 52 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, where Paul speaks of the trumpet call at the coming of the Lord and the resurrection and gathering of his people. And that's what's being referenced here. The trumpet blows and from the four winds. So from the total extent of, of the whole earth. From the north, south, east, west. In fact, as the text goes on to emphasize, from one end of the sky to the other, at the sound of the trumpet on the day of Christ's return, the elect, so that's another word for the people of God, all who believe in God by His grace, the elect will be gathered by the angels. And their bodies will rise from the graves in resurrection glory along with those saints who are alive. At the coming of Christ. He will gather his people. They'll gather with Christ. In the royal entourage of his glorious presence. As he establishes the eternal dominion of his kingdom come. This will, this will be a glorious day. Listen to how Paul puts it to the Thessalonian believers. He describes what's going on here by saying this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. With a cry of command. With the voice of an archangel. And with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The victorious gathering. So what will it be like when Jesus comes back? On one hand, we ask that question, but it seems like such a wait. We can feel drowsy while we wait. What will it be like when he comes back? Is he even coming back? Should we focus on something else, another kind of hope maybe? No, no, a passage like this tells us he is coming. And on that day, no one will miss it. The graves won't even be able to hold the bodies of the dead. The heavens will go dark and the spiritual powers of the demonic realm will be cast down. And on that day, those who have determined to set themselves against the Lord, those who are determined to mock and deny and disregard and ignore the master of the universe, they will mourn on that day. And on that day, those who have trusted in Christ will be vindicated in the resurrection glory of the presence of the Lord himself. That's what will happen which just offers us the opportunity to remember what's so central. And I guess really, really we could say the only thing that matters. There will come a day when we find ourselves in one of two positions. Right? We will either be mourning or we will be resurrecting to new life in Christ. Terrified or we will be in a place of eternal felt security. We'll either be separated from the hope of Christ or forever embraced in the eternal kingdom of Christ. There will come a day simultaneously a dark day of mourning and judgment and a bright day of resurrection rising. On that day, some are calling for the mountains to fall on them in the, in the book of Revelation in chapter 6. We, and at the same time in Revelation, following that chapter 7, we have the saints and they're speaking as well. In fact, they're singing a song in Revelation 7 on this day. Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. We're not saying rocks fall on us. We're saying salvation belongs to you and we're trusting in you. And then what's said about those saints who are singing that song? In the rest of Revelation 7, we're told the one seated on the throne will shelter them. 
They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Christmas is a time of celebration, and Christmas is a time of, of tension and expectation. And maybe you find yourself somewhere in that this morning, we quoted the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. I'm sure I've quoted it to you before because I think it's my favorite Christmas song. But, uh, but, but I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play in mild and sweet. The song repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And there's a very realistic stanza. In despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I say. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. We may feel that in our place this morning. There's hatred in the world around us. There are struggles that are very real and very pressing uh, within us. And we look for the life that's found in Christ and we ask the question, when will we find ultimate relief? And we can find ourselves in the discouragement of that middle stanza. Hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But then we come to a passage like this and we're renewed in the hope that's ours and the promise that's ours in Christ, and the fact that He is coming, and the life He brings will be final and complete, and all evil will be destroyed and set away forever. And we can find ourselves then in the, in the last stanza of that song, which goes then rang the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth He sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. So we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask that you would encourage us with this truth during this Christmas season. Lord Jesus, we long for your return. We long for you to come back and set everything right. We long for the redemption that you've purchased for us. We know, Lord, it's beyond anything we'd ever deserve, but uh, you've been gracious to us. And we, we long for the day when we gather with you in that glorious moment of, of final and redeeming grace. We pray that it would come quickly. We pray that while we wait, we would be faithful. And not only would we be faithful, Lord, but would many others be brought into your kingdom of grace. We pray that we would be effective in bearing witness to the hope that is found alone in Christ. So that on that day, uh, because of our own witness, there would be fewer mourners and more rejoicers. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.